0: In Drink the Wild Air, we're going to be talking to people who, in different ways, explore the limits of what might be possible. Scientists, explorers, artists and thinkers who ask questions that reframe our reality. People, in short, who are different from most of us, never happier than when, as Lewis Carroll might have put it, dreaming up six impossible things before breakfast. Yet while they are exceptional, they also remind us of the adventure inside all of us, of the thrill of those moments when we look at the world around us and realise it is
1: infinitely remarkable. These objects are valuable because of some element of our relationship with them. So they are not valuable simply as lumps of stone. They could be curiosities, you know, lumps of stone can be curiosities, you know, geology is an interesting subject, but there's a a reason why we have a different relationship with fossils than we do with the Venus de Milo. What is digital
0: archaeology? At its most simple, it's the bringing together of digital technologies with archaeological techniques, but the reality is much more provocative than that. In recent years, its different uses have included recreating monuments destroyed by ISIS attacks, working out the smells of different texts, including the Magna Carta, and, most provocatively of all, asking why the Elgin Marble should stay in Britain. It was 2012 when the Institute for Digital Archaeology was founded in Oxford by Executive Director Roger Michael. I'm Rachel Halliburton, and today I'm at London's Oriental Club, talking to Alexei Karinovska, the Institute's brilliant Director of Technology, who oversees everything from the gorilla scanning of ancient artefacts to reproducing them in stone through 3D printing techniques. I don't think it's an overstatement to say you caused a revolution in the discussion around one of the most contentious cultural issues of our time, the question of where the Elgin Marvels belong. It's Tuesday, January the twenty-fourth, 2023, and yesterday it was reported in the Times that it's possible that the Elgin marbles could be exhibited in Athens by the end of the year. There's obviously much to be negotiated still. The question of ownership remains fraught, and by extension the question of whether this is a loan, part of a cultural exchange, or a rotation of artefacts between Greece and the British Museum. But I think it's fair to say that questions of what might or might not be possible started to shift when you and other members of the Institute for Digital Archaeology went and took secret 3D scans of the sculptures. How did this come about?
1: <laughs> so the way we work is we make digital models, uh, and those digital models can be created using a whole range of techniques. So we could use uh, a, an expensive 3D scanning system that allows us to make uh, a 3D model of an object, almost at the press of a button, not quite, but you know, in a very direct way. We can uh, use photogrammetry. So that's a process by which we take photographs of an object from lots of different angles and then combine them in software to create a model. Or we can use a kind of combination of those two technologies. So a bit of scanning, bit of photogrammetry. Um, And the the outcome of that is a digital model. We then use that digital model uh, as the input to a piece of technology that essentially then carves the object that digital object, out of solid material. So uh, it's like, like a kind of robot. Carving yeah, exactly. Out. So it's a robotic carving system. Uh, it has many, many degrees of freedom. It looks rather, rather poetic, actually rather beautiful. So it's able to carve very, very delicately uh, in very, very hard material like marble or, in fact, granite. It's, uh, it has the, uh, the combination of the sort of refinement and uh, extreme power that's needed for, for that kind of job. So, so it was about a, a year ago that you
0: went in and took these digital scans, and this was a point last January, actually, when there was no question of the Elgin marbles being exhibited in Greece. What has happened over that
1: year? So a lot's happened in that year. I mean, I think that it's fair to say that Almost ever since the Elgin Marbles were uh, removed from Greece, there has been talk of them being returned. So for the last 200 years, there has been this debate. Uh, Byron, for example, was uh, a, a strong believer that they should be returned, and uh, you know I think we're coming up on the on the sort of 200 year 200th anniversary of Byron's death. So it, this conversation has been ongoing for a very long time. I think what is fair to say is. That uh, it is just in this last 12 months that that debate has moved on from a sort of diplomatic stalemate, one side saying no way, and the other side way, and the other side sort of saying, well, you know, absolutely, we have to. And I very much hope that we have been, you know, a constructive part of those new conversations. I think one of the things that we've tried to do is to move away from. The traditional rhetoric uh, that suggests that this situation is one where it is inevitable that one side wins and the other side loses. Because that has been a very unproductive kind of uh, way to frame this issue. I think if the British Museum is serious about educating people about antiquity, there are ways that it can still educate people about the art of antiquity without holding on, you know, for grim death... To these particular pieces of stone, you say it has
0: become more constructive, and yet just a year ago you had to go and do it as a kind of guerrilla activity. <laughs> How long did it take them to accept what you were trying to do?
1: Well, I'm not sure that anybody that they that they have really accepted what we were trying to do. I mean, that dialogue has been very interesting. Um, so we initially applied for permission to uh, to to make proper. Uh, 3D scans of actually just one of the objects in the the first instance, that uh, request was refused um, politely but without any real justification. And at that point, we decided that what we would do was we, we would gather data, nonetheless, but within uh, the scope of the visitor guidance. So to be clear, the visitor guidance within the for the British Museum explicitly allows a person to three D scan any of the objects in the museum, so long as those objects uh, those three D scans are taken from equipment that is that is handheld rather than on a tripod. And, uh, quite understandably, that the resultant scans are only used for non-commercial purposes. So that's exactly what we did. We went in with handheld equipment. And just to be clear, there's no commercial element to anything that we do at the Institute for Digital Archaeology. So that's what we did. We went in, we took our data, uh, we produced our model. Uh, you used Apple phones,
0: didn't you? Yeah, did we you did. We used
1: iPhones and, um, <clears throat> and iPads. Now, there was a huge amount of post-processing required to produce the model that we produced using that technique, which would not have been necessary at all had we been able to use the equipment that we wanted to use. But we were rather surprised when the the, the museum expressed concern. I'm not, sure that what we've done has really been accepted but I do uh, think that it is uh, you know been a an, an interesting part of this the sort of the development of this conversation and I hope that one of the things that we've done is by reproducing an object really draw attention to what these objects actually are you know one of the things that's such a shame about the Elgin marbles, as they're described in the British Museum, is that they are most famous for being part of this controversy. Every other person in that gallery is talking about the controversy. Nobody is looking at the objects. And, you know, that's a disaster, I think. You know, it's a it's a real shame. You produced a, your three-dimensional
0: object of a horse. Uh, was it Celine? Exactly, yes. Uh, yeah, the at th- at yep. the Freud Museum last November. Were... Any representatives from the British
1: Museum there? not as far as I know, although maybe they were also there in stealth mode, uh, but uh, but no, not not that I'm aware of. So you don't think that that particular sculpture influenced the announcement that we've just heard? That no, I'm, I'm not saying that. I don't want to try to take credit for something that it's not. You know, it, it, the, we are not the only people that have been part of this debate. As I say, the the uh, this is a conversation that's been got ongoing between the UK and Greece for a very long time. I do think that we have been a part of this new development. I think one of the contributions that we've made is by making something real, uh, you know, an actual physically constructed thing um, that people have been able to talk about and point to and in some cases touch and see as you know a possible way of well on the one hand see as a possible way of resolving the situation that is by producing copies but also I think it's just brought the issue into focus I also think that by keeping the topic in the news that's probably also been helpful in moving things along. The Institute for Digital Archaeology
0: was founded in 2012 by Executive Director Roger Michael to bring together digital technologies with archaeological techniques – to put that more simply, he wanted to find new ways for
1: saving precious ancient objects threatened by war, crime or neglect. How did you become involved? I got involved sort of by accident. Uh, I've always had an interest in the relationship between science and the history of science. I'm interested in uh, in history myself. And I initially got involved with the Institute for Digital Archaeology really because in the Institute for Digital Archaeology were individuals who shared interest, shared those sorts of interests, who were interested in science and obviously technology, uh, but were also interested in, like I say, some of the things I was interested in, uh, the, uh, the history of science, the relationship between the history of science and the history of the book. And then I started to realise that um, there was more scope here for using, if you like, my own training, my own expertise to do some interesting projects. And what is your training? So my background is in a combination of engineering and physics. So my first degree is in engineering science, so I have a general degree uh, in engineering, which has turned out to be extremely useful over the years. Um, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, uh, civil You were interested in designing racing cars, weren't you? I was. Yeah, that's right. So I when I when I went to university, I thought that I wanted to be a mechanical design engineer. Um, and a big part of me probably still has that um, left to my own devices. That's the kind of thing that I suppose I, you know, I enjoy doing. I like designing little mechanical things. It's just that rather than designing little mechanical things for racing cars, what I do is I design small, beautiful, sometimes large and beautiful mechanical things for research.
0: One of the fascinating questions at the centre of what you do is actually what gives a monument or ancient artefact its value. Take something like the Venus de Milo. Is it the marble from which is carved, the skill of the sculptor, the mythology that she represents, or indeed her fame since she was discovered
1: in 1820
0: that makes her valuable?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. And, and I, you know, I'd go further than that. I think this is the question. And, and I think that the value of the projects that we've done, including the, the Elgin project, is really in catalyzing debate around this Question. What I do think um, is true right across the board is that these objects are valuable because of some element of our relationship with them. So they are not valuable simply as lumps of stone. They could be curiosities, you know, lumps of stone can be curiosities. You know, geology is an interesting subject, but there's a, there's a reason why we have a different relationship with fossils than we do with the Venus de Milo one of the reasons you know why we're interested in uh, in these ancient objects is that they've been around for a you know a very long time we talk about them being a witness to history etc but then there's a long debate to be had about what that actually means so for some people it's quite important that it's that uh, specific piece of stone that has witnessed that particular piece of history other cultures other individuals are quicker to say well actually you know what you mean is that this object is just a symbol It's a symbol that stands for that act of witnessing history, if you like, and perhaps a little more willing to accept the idea that a reproduction of an object like that perhaps also contains that element of, of relationship. It was just a year
0: or so after the Institute for Digital Archaeology was founded that ISIS began a push to establish its Islamic State across western Iraq and eastern Syria. This was a time when the destruction of monuments became much more than a topic for intellectual discussion. The systematic blowing up of statues and archaeological sites was nothing less than an assault on shared history and freedom of expression. It was at this point that you and Roger Michael came up with an ingenious idea to create a shadow army who would
1: photo-document endangered archaeology across the Middle East and North Africa. Can you talk to me about this. We started working with groups in Syria uh, who were interested in documenting uh, their own cultural heritage Um, and in some way, you know, peacefully fighting back at the idea that cultural erasure, um, which of course has been used throughout history to try to suppress uh, people's cultural identity. We started to work with people in Syria who were interested in documenting their own uh, cultural heritage initially we were working solely to uh, recover if you like two-dimensional information about about architecture and objects and then we started uh, to work on the idea of demonstrating uh, that you know in fact using the kind of information that was gathered that way it would also be possible to physically reconstruct objects and Initially, we made that suggestion. Actually, um, not really thinking that it would necessarily be the focus of the project, but just, you know, as opposed to you know, understanding that uh, that this might be a potential use of the data that we that we gathered in the field. But the response to that suggestion was huge. And, and you designed the camera that enabled this? Well, hear. we used a combination of different technologies. So we sent out cameras with a very specific format that we used to, to take pictures of archaeology in the field. But actually, in the end, the reconstruction that we did of the, um, the, the arch from Palmyra, that object was actually destroyed even before we started the project. So the the images that were used to reconstruct the arch were crowdsourced from existing tourist snaps, if you like. I want to talk to you a
0: bit more about that because famously in April 2016, that arch was brought to Trafalgar Square. And after that, it went to uh, New York and Dubai.
1: That's right. And in fact, we took it. So it went, uh, it started in London. That's right. We took it to City Hall Park in New York. It had a, a really nice event. Uh, it went to Dubai. It went to the G7 Culture Summit in in Florence. Uh, so the arch was up in the Piazza della Signoria for, I think, about six weeks. That was an amazing exhibition. It went to Arona in Italy. It which is a beautiful town on Lake Maggiore as part of a big collaboration with the town there, um, it went to Washington um, as part of a uh, a bipartisan event, and this was the moment when you first decided to fuse technologies in the way that you have
0: now, more recently, for the Elgin Marbles project. This was the time when you decided to use those scans, or as you said, with this arch images to then create a program that would allow a robot to essentially recreate it as a sculpture.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the 3D carving technology that we use, part, we, we have a collaboration with a fabulous team in Italy, There are actually two companies involved. So TourArt have been operating for a long time in Carrara, up in the the marble quarries, working on both traditional sculpture and robotic sculpture. And their more recent spin-off, I suppose you might describe it, Robotor, is specifically focused on on robotic carving technology. So we work very closely in collaboration with uh, the team at Robotor. For us, it seemed like a really interesting opportunity. This, uh, the the opportunity of the the palmarine sculpture, to show really how this uh, how this technology could be deployed at a monumental scale, and you know indeed how it could be deployed in the context of a project that was neither just art nor not art, if you see what I mean. The Palmyra Arch Project was in many ways very different from the Elgin Project. It was substantially about drawing attention to the the importance of protecting Syrian culture and the Syrian people uh, to whom that culture belongs and raising public awareness in a very dramatic way, if you like for some people, it was a step too far,
0: wasn't it? And I, I know you had your detractors who worried about this Disney-style recreation of ancient monuments. Um, can you talk to, a bit about what was said
1: to you and, and how you addressed it? In the case very specifically of the Palmyra Arch project, as I think every, every object is different when it comes to people's ideas about whether or not they will like it. There were those who didn't like the idea at all and did indeed cite this idea of Disneyfication. I think that for many people, seeing the arch in person changed their views very substantially. There was some confusion, I think, over how it would be constructed. It is stone, solid stone, it weighs 13 tonnes. Although that was reported in the press, I think people still imagine something different. I think they thought it would be made out of polystyrene or something. Not that things that are made out of polystyrene, you know, can't be quite handsome, but um, it does change it, I think, when something is made out, of, uh, made out of stone. I think that the project certainly hasn't been without its critics. I don't think it would have been worth doing if it hadn't had some critics. I think that, you know, when you're operating in this kind of space dealing with you know issues of this importance there are always going to be people that you know don't like what you're doing Um, otherwise you're probably not you know you you probably haven't sort of pushed things quite you know quite far enough but I think um, I definitely think that people should not be deceived yet as you know one should not produce reproduce an object and then sort of put it forward as the original.
0: I think one thing that the COVID pandemic has taught us is really how much it means to be in the physical presence, not just of people, but of objects and buildings. That in ways that go beyond rationality, they contribute to our sense of who we are. Sometimes we can't anticipate what emotions or thoughts they will trigger. Isn't that in a way part of their power, that we can't entirely rationalise
1: our responses? Yeah, I think that's you know exactly right. I think that um, you know there's something uh, sort of unsayable about the relationship that we have with some of these objects in just the same way as you know, it's not possible to put into words, you know, a relationship with a with a person, especially, you know, someone who's very close to you or that you're very close to. Um, I think also that there are um, many ideas that we have often bubbling under the surface about objects. And by objects, I mean everything, you know, from something you might hold in the palm of your hand that is of significance to something, you know, the size of a palmarine arch, many tens of metres tall architectural scale objects. I think that there are lots of there there is something immediate about uh, our experience of those of objects generally you know people talk about immediacy in the context of art but immediacy exists you know in the context of any kind of uh, sort of object that can be experienced aesthetically and I think that being in the presence of things <laughs> actual things as you say rather than things on a computer screen is something that you know over millions of years or at least hundreds of thousands of years, humans have evolved to do in a very, very complex way. In 2020,
0: the Bodleian put on a Sensational Books exhibition, which looked at books through all five senses, and you were asked to set up the smell section. I think there were some pretty interesting conclusions. The Magna Carta, for instance, was described as smelling like moist wheat bread and beach sand. How did you conduct the analysis, and what part can smell play in digital archaeology?
1: So smell is a is a fascinating sense and I think that it is in many ways the most complex sense to describe. We often think of smell as being humorous as well. You know so you know children obviously fascinated by smells things you know are described as being smelly uh, you know in a way which is often thought of as being slightly childish. But there's really nothing childish about our sense of smell. You know the sense of smell is a very complex sense the palette or alphabet of smells, if you like, is not as well understood as the artist's palette, or I suppose it's best just to keep comparing senses rather than getting involved in alphabets. But if we think about musical notes, for example, our ability, the way that we hear, uh, the way that we see, uh, our perception of colour versus smells, those uh, sight and hearing are much, really much better understood than, than our, our sense of smell. And we are only able to describe smells uh, using simile, broadly speaking. So, you know, there's no middle sea of smells. So this creates some complexity when we're trying to talk about smells or view smells seriously. But it really is the fact that smells can be an extremely powerful uh, sort of evoker of memories, the smell of baking bread. Um, somebody was talking to me a while ago about violin cases, and um one of the things that we've been trying to do over the last few years is bring smell into the museum we set about uh constructing smells for the uh, the sensational books exhibition books i think are one of if if you were someone to list you know sort of their top 10 smells Books is often in that kind of top ten, you know, the, the smell of a, a familiar book or, you know, that paperback book smell that people feel they can kind of relax with. But, of course, books do all smell quite different. Um, so the Magna Carta smells very different to a gospel that's been sitting in a church for many, many years. It's one of the other smells we recreate. It sort of picks up a, a kind of incense smell. There are two ways of making a smell. You can chemically analyse the smell essentially understand what the chemical components are that make up the smell and then reconstruct it from those chemicals there are three approaches really so the whether or not two or three are available to you sort of depends on the nature of the object now a book is harder to sample in that way because you know it's it's not a liquid perfume it's a sort of it's a bundle of pages and binding now, what you can do is you can take a piece of book and you could process that in such a way as to arrive at something that you can chemically analyse in exactly the same way as one would the perfume. But, uh, as you might imagine, that is not an option if you're dealing with the, the Magna Carta. It's uh, even saying, well, I'll just take a little bit, uh, is not, uh, would not be too popular with the librarians. So instead, what you do is you capture the smell by essentially putting the the book uh, in a sealed environment through which you pass air and then collect basically the odour in a filter system. And then you have two choices what you can do with the filter system. You can either use the filter as you would have done the book, uh, that is uh, sort of mash it up and identify what the aromatic compounds are in, the, in what you find as the smell really is those those aromatic compounds or you can simply match the smell. So there are for so olfactionists have come up with um a group of of chemicals that work a little bit like an artist's palette when it comes to smells. It's a little more complex than that and the exact chemicals that are in that palette are not completely fixed. But nonetheless there are certain kinds of smell that are associated with certain chemicals and occur within a lot of common smells so in other words you can break most common smells in down into a relatively small group of constituent smells which you can then combine and create your uh, magna carta perfume a bit like harmonies in music exactly that's right yes yeah yeah In our first episode
0: of Drink the Wild Air, we interviewed Victor Vescovo, whose voyages to the bottom of the ocean have included exploring shipwrecks. In 2021, the Institute for Digital Archaeology became involved in a hunt for possibly the most historically significant shipwreck of all time, the sinking of the white ship in the winter of 1120. The result was the drowning of the then heir to the
1: throne, can you tell us more about the story behind the wreck and about how you became involved? I've talked about a lot of things that have happened quite organically. This was something else that happened quite organically. Um, so we were discussing Charles Spencer, Lord Spencer, uh, wrote a book uh, about the the white ship, a very fine book about the the loss of the ship and the rather unfortunate effect it had on Britain after uh, the the loss of the heir to the, the British throne. We just asked the question, you know, well, you know, has anybody... Gone to, to find it, gone to look for it, and the answer seemed to be no. It's in a location that is very uh, accessible from the from the French side. So the the ship was wrecked just outside Barfleur Harbour. And it was only actually when I went to, when we went on this expedition and were sort of bobbing around, (laughs) uh, diving, I realised just how close it is to Barfleur Harbour. I mean, obviously one can see it on a chart, but it really is within even a pauper. I'm not very good at swimming, but I think even I could probably swim from from the rock to to Barfleur Harbour so yes so we weren't aware that there'd been a uh, a recent or even really historic uh, attempt to find the the wreck the water is quite challenging there which might explain why that was the case so uh, the currents are very very strong It's not the kind of place where an amateur might dive uh, you know just sort of on the off chance maybe that's maybe that's why uh, maybe it's also just one of those things you people never sort of quite thought to do it because of the the situation at that. Time with the pandemic, we actually had to leave from the uh, the British side to avoid actually entering in France and uh, and you know having to quarantine. Uh, so we did it the the hard way, and we we came all the way across the Channel from England. But it was the most remarkable trip I've been. Spent a, an awful lot of time on the Channel, uh, and I've never known a day quite as remarkable as the one we we chose. It was absolutely like glass. It was incredible. The weather was beautiful, the conditions were amazing. And um and, you know, our intention was just to make an exploratory trip, you know, see how things went, do a, a first dive, check out the, the territory, if you like. But in the end we made rather an interesting discovery uh, and we're really looking forward hopefully to getting back in the water this later this spring. You yourself come
0: from Lviv, which was in Poland when your family started out there and is now in Ukraine. With your very unique perspective, can you talk about what's been happening there? And and might you yourself launch any projects there? Um, And if you did, what
1: would be your priority? My family was completely split up uh, at the time of the, the Second World War, so my grandfather was a Russian prisoner of war. And I think that it was only him and one of his aunts who survived. The rest of the family had uh, had not survived. But we are in active discussions about potentially working with groups who are trying to protect cultural property, large and small. So a a large amount of art has been moved out of the country or has been moved to safe safe locations uh, in the country. There's been a lot of activity across the Polish border. But Ukraine is a large country uh, and a massive repository for uh, cultural property of all different kinds.
0: We're at the point in the podcast where I ask you what culturally inspires you. Can you recommend a book, a film and a piece of music that have meant something in your work? (laughs) I think
1: I'm going to pick three things that don't really fit, uh, that don't exactly fit together, that probably exercise different parts of my personality and and probably of other people's too. There is a book written by um, the author Amin Malouf called Samarkand. And Samarkand is a book I discovered, I think, when I was an undergraduate Uh, And it's about, appropriately, the life of a book. Uh, So it's about the. I I shan't spoil the plot, but it's a book. It's a book about the importance of a book, Uh, and I read that many times, which for me is actually quite unusual. I'm not the kind of person that that that, uh, consumes books multiple times, but uh, but Samarkand I've read many times, uh, and I think is interesting both for its its content. uh, It's beautifully written, and it's also. I was lucky enough to visit Samarkand in Uzbekistan for the first time actually just before the pandemic, and so for me it was the last place I went before the pandemic um, and will also that will has, has now kind of taken on a kind of mystical quality of its own a film um, i would probably choose philadelphia story for just complete escapism uh, not too much to say apart from watch the movie if you haven't seen it it's not the kind of movie where you would see somebody reading the book samarkand and a piece of music that's really hard actually so the times they are changing, that's a good... I like that song very much because, you know, it's a... I always associate the lyric with a kind of... a combination of insistence and question mark. And what's your priority for the coming year? You know, so many people have asked me that question and I don't know the answer. Um, so I'd like to get these marbles back. Um, I will feel really good uh, once that uh, um, is done. Kidding aside, I suppose that will feel, you know, I, I've said many times we're very far from being, you know, the only group involved in, you know, this particular aim or whatever. But uh, it will feel really, really good, I think, to, you know, to to know that we've contributed and that those objects are are on their way home to Greece. Beyond that, we're looking forward to picking up, for example, on the diving. Um, and the, uh, the, the sort of underwater archaeology. Um, but I think that, you know, we'll also sort of see how things evolve. Dr Alexey Karanowska, thank you very much.